Hey there, folks. Welcome to episode 155 of the Becoming Human podcast. This episode features Daniel Rama, who is a yogi, teacher, and entrepreneur. He co-founded the app Becoming Balance, which teaches techniques for self-improvement by the means of poses, mindfulness practice, and more. I love yoga because it is very likely you'll experience the generality of movement. And it lays a foundation to be overlaid in your sport or play of choice. Uh, you can find him at danielrama.com and on Instagram at danielrama underscore. And he's got some uh, videos with uh, practice and him doing some pretty cool uh, athletic moves on YouTube. At the end of the episode, I'm going to play you out with uh, a sick freestyle by Christoph Crane that he did in Missoula, Montana a few years ago, and it was on death and birth. Completely off the top of his head, sometimes people who freestyle, they'll have like the, you know, subjects that they always riff on. Um, Christoph Crane definitely uses that in his freestyles, but these ones are all audience generated and... So it's really in the moment and the the stuff that he talks about in the moment, like the spontaneity of it and the subject matter is it's just beautiful. So if you can stick around, it's worth checking out um, without any further ado. Uh, here is Daniel Rama. Weightlifting was probably my first introduction to the fitness industry, to the active improvement. And it kind of progressed from there to more and more soft physical practices, we could say. Before you, uh, it's interesting you talked about, you know, the improvement, because that's where I see fitness um, in many other things as like a, a willingness to for self-improvement. Um, was there any time before that in your life where you were voluntarily practicing self-improvement uh, through any kind of interests? Yeah, I think towards the end of uh, my high school days, I started to become more curious about personal improvement in a physical sense, but also, you know, at the time I was making some choices that were not really conducive to a healthy, happy lifestyle. And I wanted to make some changes, some positive improvements, but for whatever reason, I found it very, very difficult. So I started with just some basic kind of weekend warrior style training in the gym, but it wasn't until I had this you know, life-changing injury that I really developed the discipline and determination to seek that improvement in a more effective way, a way that's kind of more in line with how I am today. So okay. it's been an what kind of injury did you get? Uh, that was actually an injury uh, sustained during a snatch overhead lift pattern. And I was essentially trying to do a squat at the top of that movement. Uh, this was actually to impress a girl. Uh, I was at a friend's house and things didn't go so well. I ended up dropping the weight from an overhead height hey. on top of my left foot. So it wasn't too enjoyable, but that was my the injury that eventually led me to yoga. So very, very grateful, nevertheless, for that, that accident. 
how did it lead you to yoga and what were you feeling like when you got that injury? Cause I imagine, you know, smashing your foot like that would really limit what you're able to do at least initially. Yeah, definitely. At the time I was studying to become a personal trainer. So I wanted to spend the rest of my life teaching people how to move the body. And after that accident, the doctors told me that I would lose the ability to run likely for the rest of my life that there would be some lasting damage to my left foot. So for a while, I was very depressed. It seemed like what I wanted to do with the rest of my life was not going to happen. And for a while, you know, I probably just played a whole bunch of video games in my room and, and didn't really, you know, uh, strive for too much. But at some point I got sick of just feeling sad like that all the time. So I started to seek improvement. And as soon as that change took place inside me, um, I was naturally introduced to the practices of yoga. It came into my life as soon as I made that decision that this is it. I'm going to find some way to fix my foot. And within a year, I managed to get back to running status. I actually did a, a small run, a 5K run, uh, within 12 months from that injury. So it was very quick uh, healing. Wow. And in the span of when you get the injury and you start doing yoga and then you, you know, you're able to do the things you weren't able to do, what kinds of um, uh, adaptations or knowledge did you get in that in-between space? Um, like, yeah. Yeah, I think that um, I owe so much credit to my father here. Uh, prior to the injury, he and I weren't really talking so much. My parents had separated just before, and my dad and I weren't really on talking terms. But after the injury, he bridged the gap and introduced me to basic yogic techniques. Things like visualization were so incredibly important. Like literally just imagining myself walking down the street um, without any kind of assistance, no cane, no crutch. Um, so visualization, other types of mindfulness practices, just simple body scan, becoming more intimately in tune with the physical system. And then of course we had some asanas. He introduced me to breathing exercises. So yoga for me, anyhow, when I was introduced to it, it wasn't just the physical postures. Yoga was the proper exercise, but then also proper breathing, proper diet, proper relaxation, and also positive thinking or meditation. So beyond just what people would think about as like an exercise modality, I suppose, what is yoga? Yeah, yoga, the word itself, it means union. This is, I think, something that most people know by now. But what that really means is that yoga is a set of tools. It's a certain process that allows one to become the best possible version of themselves. Now, yoga in a classical sense, it's things like asana, pranayama, so on and so forth. But in actuality, yoga is anything which helps you become a better version of yourself. And therefore, something like doing the dishes, uh, going on a walk, uh, so many different things can also be classified as yoga if the mindset and the intention are in line with yogic study. So my exposure to yoga, it essentially resulted in um, having the ability to turn every little aspect of my life into some sort of yogic practice. Um, so instead of it being just something you do on your yoga mat, it's a lifestyle that you embody. And this was crucial for me. And um, 
with with yoga it's something that i find very interesting in terms of how we manage our sensations especially sensations of discomfort uh in that you know we'll oftentimes take medications and find different things to alleviate the symptoms and the feelings that we have um and what i find is is that generally it takes more of that you know therapeutic to be able to uh rid yourself of whatever symptom you're feeling and it seems to continually escalate up and up and up taking more and more and more um and that's a pretty big generalization but if I were to make the inverse generalization, the only thing that I kind of activity that I find the, in opposition to that or the, the opposite is exercise. And it's not quite exercise, though, because as I'm learning and, you know, with meditation and a variety of other like even social things, getting up on stage or rock climbing and facing the fear of heights, for example, is that you can... Um, if I can't lift a weight, right, or yeah, if I can't lift a weight, the, the way that I can um, lift the unattainable weight is by incrementally facing stresses that are manageable, but just outside of my comfort zone and my ability. And then physically, my body, like in the real world, adapts before my eyes. And it's something that happens, you know, consistently in the sense that if you don't have balance, you go to the edge of your, you know, your balance, right? If you can't do one foot, you just support yourself with an arm and do one foot. And over time, it just works in this way. And, you know, learning seems to be the similar thing. Uh, social anxiety, my experience with that's very um, similar. And when I got introduced to yoga, it, it seemed that, you know, if I were to like really generalize it, um, to step in a process of um, taking part in like uh, incremental stress in the direction of an overall goal and i don't really know if that's exactly yoga but do you know what i mean by that like i i felt like like i'd have an injury and it would be like you know rest rest the injury and you know it'll get better over time here's some physical therapy but then with yoga it was like well rest you know rest that and then over time you know scale your poses and your postures and your breathing and work on what you can control separating what you can control what you can't control um, I don't know if you could speak to the differences of those. Sure. Systems and yeah, I mean, in all different types of improvement, whether you're looking to improve physically, mentally, emotionally, in your occupation, any type of improvement, it usually has to do with pushing past plateaus as opposed to allowing ourselves to rest in those kind of moments of almost stagnation as far as improvement is concerned. And so... Yeah, like in my own personal healing, it was very important to keep pushing that line, teasing that line. I needed to put just enough weight through my left foot so that I could stress the tissues and through that stress, they would grow and develop. But you can also, of course, push it too far and create more problems, more injuries for yourself. So yeah, I think that it is a skill knowing how much is too much. And unfortunately, things like social media, they paint this like, they paint yoga into a very acrobatic kind of category. Things look just so advanced. And practitioners these days tend to think that you need to do the final pose. It's the final pose, the full position, or nothing at all. Uh, if we use something like a peacock pose, you know, like this elbow lever where your legs are straight out, you're balancing on the arms. 
it seems like, like I want to do that whole pose. And if I can't do it, I'm just going to go as far and I'm going to fall and I'm going to keep trying like this. And you'll never grow with that type of a mindset. It would be far better to get yourself into a position still with your feet on the ground and then shift just as far forward as you can. So you feel your body shaking. You feel like you're going to fall, but you don't allow yourself to fall. It's not the full pose, but if you stay there, breathe, try to become more comfortable, eventually you're able to access the full pose through that type of a progression. So yeah, knowing how to work past plateaus is important for everyone, regardless of what it is that you're trying to improve. I think that's in line with what you're, you're asking about. Mm -hmm. And how much, uh, how much is fixation a distraction? when it comes to trying to achieve something in yoga? Because I had that in yoga where, it's, you know, I'm trying to do a handstand. Ah, I'm going to hold a handstand. That means I'm having a good time in yoga and I've achieved. Like, Sure. I would usually break it down with uh, pleasure versus purpose. So it's essentially the same concept. And we need to find a unique ratio, our own ideal balance between these two. And this, again, applies to every aspect of your life. Um, nutrition is a good example our diet needs to be an appropriate ratio of eating for purpose versus eating for pleasure. Eating for purpose, if you can get away with it, that would be the ideal. Like myself, I'd be happy eating the exact same healthy meal every day, breakfast, lunch, and dinner for the rest of my life because I know that's what my body needs. But at the same time, there is something that you get out of having those comfort foods. If you're feeling a certain way, you know, you need a bit of a pick-me-up, ice cream, baby, just grab some ice cream, whatever it is that you want. It's not really going to help you directly achieve your nutritional goals, but it will help to influence a more pleasant state of mind. And when you have that pleasant state of mind, then your purpose is going to be more readily achievable. And so it's the same kind of thing with our movement practice. Um, sometimes like we get it in our head that at least with me, it's like improvement is the goal everything I do is about improvement. And then you become a bit like a robot. It gets a little bit mechanical and you kind of lose the joy. So then you need to do some random fun handstand, hand balance, whatever makes you smile so that you can remove that robotic style of operation and get back to just feeling your body and really enjoying the practice. So to everyone, it's going to be different, but both of those elements definitely have value in this practice. It sounds like cultivating a mindset is something that seems pretty important in developing coping, personal coping skills that work for you to get to a particular mindset is important. Absolutely. The mind is an, an interesting thing <laughs> in that way. Uh, is that, do you believe that that's as much of a skill as anything else? I think that in, in many ways, it's the prerequisite for most other things. Every action, whether it's just to move my hand like this, it starts first as a thought. In the mind, it's just a bundle of thoughts. If your thoughts are of a poor quality, then your body, your emotions, your energies will also be of a poor quality. If you can elevate those thoughts, your movements will be more pure. Your interactions will be uh, you know, more elevated. So in many ways, it's the first step. Everything starts as a thought, that most subtle aspect of physicality. It needs to be a good thought that it starts from. So a mindset is, is crucial. 
in in what ways has yoga introduced you to new ways that you can control your body um, like for for me i've learned that um like in cat cow position I, I don't know if this is like a like posturally correct or whatever but it's been really enjoyable to find out that like with my spine i would always move from my shoulders to my hips and i'm learning to move from my head to my hips and then to go from my head incrementally all the way down to my hips and I would always move articulating from my shoulders and hips at once but mm. I learned that I can move my like keep my you know hips in uh, cow position and start flexing my shoulders and, and like I've experienced that with a lot of you know things in my life yeah it's a tabletop spinal wave mm -hmm. that you're describing yeah such a very healthy thing for the body Feels I so love good <laughs> yeah and um, is, is there, so have you had any other experiences like that? Like in improving body awareness, I suppose? Yeah, definitely. I, I mean, I, if you look at the first handstand that I ever did, it was nowhere close to where it currently is. Um, the improvements that I've started to notice go, or not even the improvements, just what you can notice in your body. It has increased in a tremendous way in that, you know, through things like a body scan, you can actually feel the blood moving through your veins. You can feel what it's like to follow an inhalation all the way down past bronchioles towards your alveoli. If you're really, really listening to these sensations, you can feel tremendous, phenomenal things in the body. And none of it I had access to before. Uh, the practice of yoga, in many ways, it's about elevating your perception. You know, one of the first things that we need to do in this yogic practice is go into our senses. We need to learn how to hear better, to smell better, so on and so forth. And uh, in yoga, there's something called pratyahara, which is withdrawal of the senses. And this is something that in order to withdraw your senses, what that means is bring your senses more inside the system. In order for that to happen, you need to first let them go as far out as possible. So yeah, it, yoga, it's allowed me to notice some, some aspects of my body, my mind, so on, that I otherwise had absolutely no idea about. I guess one thing that's, that would be really helpful for people who, to relate to it would be your heartbeat, right? Because that's a pretty powerful thing. And most of the time you don't really hear it. And I imagine even with the same heart rate that everyone has listening, they could probably create that space and try to focus and listen to it. Right. And so that would be like almost a starting point as well. Just noticing the heart rate. A next step, for example, would be when you inhale versus when you exhale, how does the heart rate change? So simple little things like this, we can peel back layers, progressively peel back layers and become more aware of the things that are actually going on inside of the body. I, I had that, I think, during um, with cold, cold exposure, where at first I, I always thought it was like painful and uncomfortable. And then I realized that it felt exhilarating to me. But I don't think the feeling ever changed. I just think the ability to interpret the nuance changed. Like I felt very overwhelmed initially. But when I was able to calm down and like breathe and relax, the, then I was able to experience, you know, what I would assume is positive sensation, 
but I never think that the sensation changed. I think I changed, like my interpretation of it changed. Absolutely. And I would agree with that 100%. Yeah. It's the time old saying that it's not the experience, but how we perceive it that truly matters. And it's interesting because if you are fixated in those experiences on a particular thing, then you could almost miss everything that's going on. Cause it seems that the point isn't to achieve something, but to put yourself somewhere of uncertainty and observe everything that's going on with greater and greater accuracy. Or Yeah, absolutely. No, it's all about maintaining that curiosity, that level of introspection and just staying really, really yeah, curious, I think is the, the word that I always use to describe how we should have our relationship to the body. Let's stay curious about it. Have you found any limitations of create when you create hard and fast rules for yourself, whether that's in like yoga or, or life? And what's the association with plateaus? Yeah, I, I think that the relationship does change. Um, I tend to go through cycles in my practice where for a series of a few months, the focus would be on physical development and then maybe more so on pranayama. Now I'm kind of going through like, a service phase where it's all about just creating content for other people as opposed to going crazy with my own personal practice. So it does go through some phases and my ability to, um, to honor those little rules that we might create for ourselves, it also does fluctuate to a certain extent. But there are certain parts of my daily routine that are just non-negotiable. And, you know, pretty much everyone, I think, wakes up and brushes their teeth. Uh, it's not something that human beings did since the beginning of time. That's something that we've learned, you know, over time. So if we create a certain routine and we just stick to it, you know, it, it can be easy to maintain that. And, and it's kind of like an all or nothing thing with me. I don't do very well with like the whole midfield moderation. Um, so if there is a day where like I would let something slip, it can be a little bit difficult to get that back, you know, which is why for me, it's important just not to let it slip. You know, prevention is the key. Have you always been aware of that part of yourself? And if you haven't, what was like a, a moment where you had to wrestle with the expectation of being one thing and realizing you're another thing? Yeah, I think it has always been there. Um, but it's whether or not I've listened to it yeah. that's changed. Um, I think in my younger years, you know, I, I knew innately what I might need to do to improve or find fulfillment. But for whatever reason, I just did other things. Uh, my priorities were elsewhere, you know. Um, but after I had this kind of catalytic introduction to yoga, uh, it was much easier for me to listen to that voice. And, and part of it was that in my earlier years, it was my life. Like I'm living just to enjoy and hang out with friends, whatever. After my injury and my introduction to yoga, it became how can I share these things with other people? It became not my life, but a life that belongs to all those who stand to benefit, you know, through my unique skill set. So when we do something for ourselves, sometimes it's a little bit difficult. Sometimes uh, we quit, you know, easier than we otherwise would have. On the other hand, if we were focusing just on other people, improving the day of another person, 
sometimes it's easier for us to stick to those commitments. Um, so yeah, kind of like forgetting about my little self and focusing on just improving the day of, of other people. It's been very valuable. And it's beautiful that you come to all of these realizations and um, on your own with your own personal context and you're passionate and inspired about it. How would you speak to your, your, um, your middle school and high school self? And would you, um, another version of you, would you try to help them realize the things you realize sooner and not experience those mistakes? Or would you, would you handle that differently as a, as like a mentor? Yeah. I mean, I think I probably would try to give young Rama a little bit of help, but at the same time, I don't think he would uh, listen. I've always been the kind of person that needs to figure things out for myself. And so, yeah, if, uh, you know, the older version of myself came to give me some advice back in high school, maybe I would listen. Maybe it would at least be a seed that's being planted, but more likely than not, I would still need to make all of the same mistakes um, basically for myself. Yeah. As a, as a father, um, specifically a father who grew up without dad um, and in a kind of rough, like, you know, environment. And I, figure these things out for myself and a lot more things to work on. Um, but I get so excited about the life that opened up to me and so much so that as a dad and you see your son that you want the best for your children. And sometimes, um, I'd look at the experiences that I went through, like, uh, you know, overdosing and, you know, being a dad when I was like in my teens and stuff, uh, a variety of things. And I'm like, wow, those were, that was suffering. And I was not on the path that like I was on a path that could, that hurt me in some ways. And you know, you don't want your child to be hurt. So masquerading, well, I feel like it's masquerading and um, in like compassion was my desire to, uh, to do everything I can hyper vigilance, not to protect protect my child well yeah but to expose him to like different lessons and try to use everything that I could to teach him um, and give him information and expose him to the world and I realized that the more that I focused like it was important to focus on the other and to do and to have service but the more that I externalized that desire for my son to be well with all of these like rigmarole and actions you know and talking about like you need to eat healthy and like all of this just trying so much that it would actually do the opposite and that and that there was two things is that I was becoming it was tyranny in its own way right um and then the other thing is is like to make it short you're just really fucking annoying and it's that person has their own life and some of it is is that I thought I was being like the best dad that I could be in some case I might have been but I could not bear the idea of my son experiencing suffering like I had. And the reality is, is that we all experience suffering in some manner and we have baggage. And it's not like I'm not my goal is not try to rid either my son or my students. Right. If I'm like teaching something, uh, you know, maybe as a fitness instructor, I'm not trying to rid everyone of their baggage. So they feel no pain and they feel no suffering. They feel no sorrow. But rather, I 
it's this delicate balance of trying to create space and offer guidance when it's available. Being a teacher or a mentor is very hard because explicitly telling someone how to do something is almost seems to be just as destructive as not showing up at all. Yeah, there, there is a, a fine balance that needs to be attained. And I, I'm not a parent, I'm not a father at the moment, but one day I'd love to be. But I, I think that there is, and this applies to other relationships as well, that there is an issue with kind of superimposing our own past traumas or successes on the lives of other people. So how you were in your upbringing you don't want that for, you know, your kids or your children. And so you act in such a way that it applies to your history, not necessarily to theirs. And it's really difficult to get around that because like we all, as you said, we have so much baggage and we tend to bring it into all of our relationships. Just everybody does it, you know, all the time. But it's finding ways to kind of keep that baggage, at least momentarily, at bay. And in the example of, you know, a father-child uh, interaction, it's more about uh, just taking care of the survival needs, basically. Take care of basic survival, food, water, shelter, sleep, whatever. Everything above and beyond that, like, allow exploration, allow for mistakes to be made. Because just like with myself, all of the biggest uh, lessons in my life have come through mistakes. Uh, on the other end of the spectrum, my brother has been the kind of uh, person who could learn from other people's mistakes, from other people sharing their experience. And it worked for him, did not work for me. I needed to figure it out on my own. So it's hard to judge how people or how our children might receive information that more so applies to our personal past. Um, yeah, I, I, I feel like we need to get just a little bit more out of the way. At least my parents, like, they did a really good job because they, they did kind of get out of my way a little bit. Mind you, I was, it was kind of like my way or the highway. If they didn't do something that I, I liked as a kid, I would just run away from home and so I was at flight risk like they you know they had to kind of let me let me figure it out on my own yeah so that was good I mean it's so hard and I feel like I'm really looking forward to that day where I do have the opportunity to welcome new life into this world mm -hmm. I feel like you know on an intellectual level I've got it all figured out <laughs> uh, but I don't think it'll be the case no. <laughs> helps though because <laughs> i i think it's like uh, almost like anything you know it's not uh, you can't really plan out what's going to happen you could just go into it and see what happens <laughs> right and and that's a that's the thing that i take a lot of comfort in and i've even taken comfort in that with the, my own practice in yoga and how i experience what a handstand is is like um is that that's the that's like kind of the game in some fashion is is like go up into that unknown situation and just open up, you know, and, and with the, with good intention too. Cause that's another thing that I, that I have is that I find that it's like this balance between, you know, enough structure and not enough structure essentially. And you like can go into these kinds of experiences and it's like, look, look within, but still within external guidance, I, I suppose. Hmm. 
Um, be in the world, but not of it. So, <laughs> I like that. I was um, really experiencing a lot of these things that I was talking about as a father and um, learning uh, how to teach yoga. And one of the experiences that really stuck out to me is like, if you're going to go into a handstand, um, sometimes you would explain all the problems you had in the handstand and what to expect. But then you're taking that experience away from your student and they're not able to look within and observe like what we talked about to interpret their experience. So it's like, you know, if you have four breaths or four, four reps, four kickups for a handstand, you know, explain it in two and then give like two or three of, of silence. And I didn't, that was a poignant realization for me because like I said, throughout my whole life, I always thought, well, the more that I explain things, the more that the more, you know, whether visual accompaniment or writing or the more I sit down and think about how to talk about it and metaphors, that this is what helps. And I just realized that, fuck, man, I, I got to get out of my own way in the sense that it's people's experience. Like I'm taking you to a seat at the table. I'm not mm-hmm. telling you exactly how it's going to go. And then you can come back with your self-knowledge and curiosity um, and tell me what you find. And that experience is, is so, so fun because you could rejoice with one another in whatever learning that you get out of it, you know? Um, but yeah, it's like, it's like teaching, uh, teaching the man how to fish yeah. Yeah, in the movie inception. Great. Oh yeah. So kind of with teaching, it's that concept where how can you make someone have an experience as if it was their own experience? How can you encourage that? So in in teaching, you need to know how much information to give just to point the direction that you should be paying attention, but not giving away the whole answer. It still needs to feel like the student uncovers that answer for themselves. And when they do, it's a more long lasting than if you were to just be like, "Ah, this is what you should be feeling in, in this position, for example. So it is a fine balance as a teacher. What is too much information? If I go to, they're all closed, but the studios, it is one thing I notice, especially about new teachers. It's just like verbal diarrhea, so much instruction. This is how this should feel. This is the anatomy involved, so on and so forth. And it does detract from the end experience of the person that, that, I mean, some people, if you're more intellectual, you, you might enjoy listening to it Mm -hmm. but as far as like an experiential level is concerned you just won't learn as quickly if you're taking away those lessons from your students with um with breathing what kinds of systems are are like things that you've learned through the yoga the breathing side of yoga Hmm. simplicity (laughs) when it comes to breathing simplicity is very big for me um as far as classical pranayamas are concerned, diaphragmatic breathing, full yogic breath, kapalabhati, annuloma viloma. Um, I wouldn't really go farther than that for the majority of practitioners. Uh, I might do some bastrika or something myself if I'm actually guiding myself through like a retreat, some more advanced pranayamas. But for the most part, breathing should be comfortable and we should work to comfortably elongate the breathing. Um, in Kundalini traditions, if you work up to a full one minute breath, one minute for the inhalation and the exhalation, 
this is where they say is that that's the start of true human life. You know, when you get to that level of breathing, your system becomes optimized in such a way that it was like you were totally dead before, comparably speaking. Now you're just alive. The breath can absolutely do that for us, but in some circles these days, physically, yes, with the breath, yes, with meditative practices, yes, we tend to overcomplicate uh, these practices. Mm -hmm. So some people are doing like, you know, whatever, five, six, seven different pranayamas in a single session. I would take just a longer time to do one or two. You know, this is how I would say. And so what's, so you see the, what's going on there then with, with the breathing? Because like I've, like I said, looking at, you know, yoga, for example, there's like really posture yoga. I mean, fitness just in general, right. And how to move your body, how to get strong and mobility and all that other crap. Like that's super complicated. There's so much different kind of paradoxes in those things. Um, but the, the greatest thing that I've found once again with the, with the yoga is, is like, um, you could put your body in a, in a state, you know, the, in a posture, and then you can feel all different ways to apply pressure into the ground and resist gravity and breathe, right? And hold your body. And like, whatever you figure out in there and all the variations and how you can move um, and hold space, you can learn a lot of information, right? And if you go into new places, you can learn new information, new ways to move your body, new ways to squeeze things, etc. cetera. Um, so with breathing, is it just the 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 focus on conscious breathing as opposed to relying on your autonomic like your your nervous system like do, do you see what i'm saying like what's the general practice of breathing here that's really given you that experience yeah so the concept will also apply to the asanas and other aspects of the practice um with the breath it's it's a very subtle thing to have just someone who's breathing normally, maybe they're even breathing in reverse, which is very common these days, versus an experienced yogi who understands how the breath should move, there will be a huge difference in just the benefit of one inhalation between these two parties. So physically, we can grow a lot. We can learn how to do the handstands, all of these crazy cool shapes. It doesn't even compare to the range of improvement that we can find through our breath. The breath is an extremely potent medium for overcoming all sorts of ailments or just reaching our goals. And in order to get there, we need to make the breath steady. We need to make the breath comfortable. We need to make the breath rhythmic. And to do these things while holding postures or just you know seated asana, it's challenging. And it really does take years and years and years of experience to get to a state where you're truly finding some benefit through the breath. Um, but for most people, it's just, it's complex in its simplicity is really how we can say it. It's so simple what you need to do, but we have this mind of enjoyment, this mind that is a pleasure seeker that likes new and different. And really what we need is just boring, but effective. If everyone could just do what's boring but effective, you would find so much growth in yoga. But we like to do instead what's fun and not so effective these days. Something that I experience in yoga is a lot of pleasure in the physical 
practice of yoga, I suppose, is like a lot of pleasure happens um, after posture, for example. Um, and I have to willingly put myself in a physically uncomfortable place to then have that, you know, sense of pleasure or positive sensation. Whereas with certain other kinds of instant gratification things, right, I reach for the pleasure and the, the feel good sensation initially. And then, you know, without with trying to avoid some sense of discomfort there, and then down the road, perhaps, I face that discomfort. Really, I always think about like alcohol, uh, and like heroin, and stuff like that. Because, you know, you take it, it's just always seems that way. It's either like there's uh, a discomfort in the end, or maybe not this time. But mm -hmm. when it comes to like exercise, or yeah, yeah, I guess exercise, but maybe even yoga practice, yoga practice as well. Um, it running it's the same thing right like it's the initially oh i don't know if i want to do that and then when i get done with it it feels amazing but then there's right. this little game where it's like that person who resists i develop a relationship with them and like don't freak out don't be mean to them and then that person who enjoys the pleasure i'm not withholding all the time and i'm you know loving and caring for them too it's like what you're talking about about that dichotomy almost right Oh, finding that balance. Yeah. And yeah, I, I, it reminds me, you know, certain substances or certain interactions, they yield positive or pleasant experiences right away. But mm -hmm. then through prolonged use tend to shift more towards that negative side. Whereas things that are, um, they require constant attention in order to yield results. Like with asana, if you're totally new and you just walk into the practice, chances are, your body will not like it. Your body will try to fight back. But if you can push a little bit through that initial discomfort, then as you say, you're allowed to experience those sensations with something like taking drugs. You can have that same kind of euphoric experience just doing breathing exercises. With the drugs, you just take it. It's instant. You've got that sensation. Eventually, you plummet. With the breathing exercises, it takes a lot of time and effort but you can experience those same or similar sensations. It just takes a lot of effort. And how does, um, I keep going to the postures, but that's my experience so far, but yeah. how does yoga postures and maybe even breathing, how does that make you feel emotionally? Um, yeah. Well, different things. So certain asanas, they will, um, allow us to bring to the surface some emotions that we've buried or some unpleasant experiences that we've buried. Uh, as humans, that's something that we do all the time. We have a horrible experience. We don't deal with our problems. We just bury it somewhere down deep. And for example, backbending postures like matsyasana, fish pose, wheel pose, urdhva these types of heart openers essentially help bring to the surface some of those things which we've buried. So depending on who you are and depending on how much you tend to bury uh, unpleasant experiences, doing asanas, it might seem like the asanas are making you angry or frustrated or whatever. After the practice, you just feel like, what's going on? The practice didn't create that. The practice is just showing you what you've already had underneath the surface. Whereas if you're somebody who deals more constructively with your emotions and your experiences, 
something bad happens, you deal with it right then and there, head on. Then when you're practicing yoga asanas, chances are, you know, your experience will be totally different. So these asanas, they're just tools and tools, they'll work differently in different situations. Um, but for the most part, these asanas, these postures, help you first to see what's already there and then to sit present with whatever is there. And uh, that's interesting. My mom, she takes, um, I forget what kind of pain medication, but she takes pain medication and it's, I don't think it's an opiate, but she said that it's very interesting because it's not that it takes away the pain. It actually changes where your mind focuses. It makes your mind focus, your mind's focus a little more erratic and that it can't focus on one specific thing for very long. And that's actually where a lot of the pain alleviation comes from. And yeah, I thought that was really interesting too. Cause I'm like, wow, I've, that's something that I uh, actively practice on. And like for people out there who don't have any experience and it's like, that's kind of wacky or whatever. I mean, I always think about like, try to count to try to count your heartbeat like 40 fucking times without you know, getting distracted or losing count or, you know, wanting to get up or anything like that. And that's really hard, yeah. you know, and at least it is for me. And if that means that it's really hard, uh, you can learn to improve that. Right. And this is actually something that we use in our retreats and our trainings to help increase comfort with the seated posture, cross-legged posture for meditative practices. Most people, when they're starting out, pain in the knees pain in the lower back, pain in the ankles, so much pain. And, you know, unknowingly what's happening is you're just focusing on this pain. And through that attention, you're exaggerating it. You're making that pain flourish. Whereas we would do a simple exercise where you keep the physical body completely still. Even if there's pain or discomfort, don't move the body, at least for the first time that the body starts to yell for some side of relief. And instead, what you do is you focus on either the breath or on elongating the spine. Either way you word it, you move the mind from focusing on the pain to focusing elsewhere. And typically what you see is that the pain will change. So sensations in the knees might shift from like a burning sensation to pins and needles or whatever. And if pain or something like that is changing, what it means is that it's not constant. It's not actually real. It's something that's being created by our mind. So it's like, um, you know, if I tell you not to think about monkeys, you're going to think about monkeys. But if instead you take your mind off to just thoughts of dinner, naturally now you're no longer thinking of monkeys, you're thinking of dinner. And in a similar way, if you move the mind from painful thoughts of the knees or other places of the body, to the breath or the spine or a mantra if you're practicing japa, you see that pain disappears. So it's essentially the same thing that these drugs are doing in, in your mom's situation. Another uh, practice that I found interesting was um, looking directly in those sensations. And I didn't realize that um, I, would avert, I would avert my eyes, even when I would fixate on it. Like it's a, it's a very weird little mental, like subtle thing where you could fixate on the sensation of pain, but not be not direct your attention and be fully aware of how it actually feels. 
Hmm. And, and I've noticed that also with emotions too. And like anger, you know, something makes you feel really angry. And if you could like look inside and observe the anger, not put the anger on, but observe it, it like starts to really just unwind and unravel. And I've done that by, you know, in like meditation where I'm like completely neutral feeling. And then I think of the most, you know, angry thoughts that I can. And then you just observe those angry thoughts. And in that experience, that's kind of what I, what I had or what my teacher brought me to. And it was like, I was right. so excited then. Cause yeah. yeah. No, this is very elevated to have that capacity. Um, yeah. Like when it comes to, Certain sensations, um, yeah, how do I want to word this? Yeah, no, I'm not sure how I want to say it. <laughs> <laughs> You're good. Lost my train of thought. No worries. There's, I even had that with, I had like severe tooth pain when I was a kid and, um, and I couldn't get rid of it. And there's points where you have like throbbing, I guess, maybe that's just a general feeling that I have. Um, the throbbiness would be really painful and since like just terrible sensation. But then when I would look into it, it felt like a gentle warming massage. And I've gotten stung by, I don't know if you know what stinging nettle are, but mm. stinging nettle or fucking, they, they can kind of hurt. Uh, but my experience with them, I didn't, I moved to Washington. I've never known what they were and I get, um, pricked by them and I always think there are bee stings um, but because my son would come over and he would you know cry and I'd realize that I was getting hit by them and I didn't really notice anything but when I touched the stinging nettle I get that same throbbing sensation I used to feel a lot in my mouth because of my cavities uh, and it's actually really pleasant <laughs> it's a really pleasant sensation and it's not that it doesn't hurt or that I wouldn't want to go like if it was really intense I probably couldn't enjoy it but at a really low level, it feels like uh, like the sun um, coming out after a really cold day and just washing over my body in warmth. And I'm like, this is really fucked up because like this shouldn't happen. And I didn't know what was going on, but I felt like it was the cold shower thing again. Right. Yeah. No, this level of awareness, it's, you know, what I would call open curiosity where you're observing something. But as you said, you're not becoming entangled in it. You're not saying like. I am experiencing pain. You're just saying like, what's really going on there with that pain or any other sensation. And when that happens, you start to peel back these layers and uncover what it is that you're truly experiencing. That was what I wanted to say. My wife just walked past. No, you didn't. <laughs> 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 always grabbed my attention. <laughs> That's so cool because I just like, I always would read about those things without doing, you know, doing those kinds of practices. And I just like, woo woo, didn't understand, didn't see like science backing it up. And further and further as I have these kinds of experiences in my life, I'm starting to understand it a little more because rock climbing is another example where when you're on like a, a cliff edge and you get into a fight or flight state, um, you're visually the rock you won't see any kind of moves and it's, it'll be like not vertical even. And it will just automatically, the whole thing will look scary, terrifying. Any little bulge on the rock looks like it's going to break your knees open. And you realize like, I'll do like, I'm going to do a fall and I'll tell my partner falling, even though I don't have to, and I'll jump and it's just little. And I realize that my, how I'm perceiving reality 
is so influenced by my emotional state that I'm not perceiving it as it is. And then I wonder mm -hmm. like how much of that is just my experience in general. And it's so subtle that I don't notice it at all. A large portion, I would, I would reckon. <laughs> and if you're invested in like the something stings you and you're concerned, because my son would get this with a fly. A fly would come in and be like, dad, 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 it's a bee. And I'm like, bees and flies, the different colors, buddy. And, but he'd be really scared and it probably looked and was terrifying to him. So I get that, that once I'm entangled or once I identify with something is a threat, then I could see how all of these sensations would take on a whole new meaning and, and how I can feel really in pain and really uncomfortable and how much that could probably be influenced by emotion, especially if in a climbing state, it's happened to me all the time and that's texture on a rock. Right. Is, yeah. And this is why we say with yoga that it's so important to maintain the joy or just maintain a pleasant state of mind. When you are pleasant, you are going to be stronger, more flexible, more adapt to actually notice what's going on in the outside world. Whereas if you're just not feeling it, you're frustrated, you're angry, you're upset, it's like your blood is literally boiling. You, you no longer have control over your own system. These emotions are taking over. So it's an important practice to learn how to create some space between these emotions that we experience, these sensations that we experience, and who we truly are on a deeper level. We might feel angry, but we're not angry people. It's just something that comes up. I don't know what movie it is, that cartoon, where there's these little characters like pushing little buttons inside somebody's brain. Yeah, inside out, I think. Or... Inside out, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's not you who's angry. It's just this little character pushing some buttons. So if you can see that it's not really you, then you can look at it, you know, more from a third party perspective and you can choose more consciously what you'd like to do next. In your yoga practice is an ex is a literal visceral experience that allows you to, to have that situation unfold. Right? right. Yeah. It gives you like a delay when you have some experience, good or bad, instead of just reacting right away you've got this little delay this little tiny pause that's just like okay this is what is right now what would you like to do next so it's responding consciously instead of reacting compulsively and is that the process that you overlay in your your practice i would say so yeah but the goal is moving from compulsiveness to consciousness it, to say it a different way Yoga is the process of becoming like an inert object. Yoga is the process of anything going on in the outside world. But if I'm such a way, still I'm unaffected by whatever kinds of sways are going on around me. And you polish the mirror, not mostly by reading theory, but by going on and experiencing it. Yeah, that's the other beautiful thing about yoga, or we could say Eastern philosophy versus Western philosophy. Western philosophy is kind of just like a group of these old guys sitting around chatting about like their thoughts of life. Whereas Eastern philosophy involves a set of practices, which if you follow these practices, you end up experiencing the resulting philosophy. 
So Eastern philosophy, yoga philosophy, it's something that just happens, comes into your experience as a result of following a certain set of, of practices. They're different. And, and that's what I found interesting about the predicament that I have in my communities, because we all want to be the best that we, we all want to be the best version of ourselves. And, you know, within a religion, like within a church, you know, and it's not to like denigrate religion, but um, there's a, like a principle of like, you know, like not glut, like don't be a glutton. Right. And people often too, if you have like drug addiction, right, that's, that's problematic. And there's tenants within the religion to um, keep people from doing that and teach them the, to the principle of striving to not overconsume, right? And not overindulge. Um, but how many workaholics are in church? Right. And, and also the, the, the way that things are dealt, like, and I think about, like I said, this is where I get with my son, where it's like, here's all the lessons and I want to bestow all my theory to you, you know? And like, if you don't get it, I want you to read more and listen more about it. And that's the same experience that I've had in, you know, certain different a variety of different churches and religions. And those are great and have their place, like I said. But these experiences that I've had, they're deeply profound and they're tailored specifically to me because they were witnessed by me. And in the it doesn't fall victim to um, corruption in that whenever I try to teach my son something and try to lecture it to death or explain a lesson to him without giving him the experience, all of my biases and even my traumas that I'm afraid for him to have, it all sneaks in there without me realizing it. And, you know, I have uh, kids that I worked, I worked in like the public schools, right? And public schools, not denigrating that entirely either, but there wasn't this experiential education. And with the experiential education, I realized that there was not very much character development. I worked with kids that were emotionally and behaviorally delayed. They try to throw rocks at me, beat me up over doing schoolwork and stuff. And these people would like, you know, as staff, you would say you just deliver consequences so that you can get this particular behavior. And there's a place for that. But these experiences, like in, in yoga and all these other things, the consequences are put onto you. Like it's, it's a full, you know, an encaptured thing. Like you want something. That's why you're here. That's why you're doing a practice, right? You showed up voluntarily and your body or whatever, there's, here's all the obstacles. I didn't create them. Here they are. What are you going to do about them? And, you know, and if you struggle or whatever, it's not because I put them there and I get to remove them and you're mad at Will because Will's not letting you go play, right? It's all contained inside of it. Because what I get with my son is like, son, I don't want you to play electronics all day. And so I'm going to limit you with a cap. Here's, here's like one example. And you're only going to get, you know, a certain amount of hours a day. Okay. And so when those hours are up, it's okay. My dad said, I can't play any more video games. And what he gets out of that is, is the dynamic between what I allow him to do and, you know, and what he's, how he can spend that time. Well, that's that giving a man a fish, you know, and teaching him how to fish. Because what yeah. am I trying to teach him? He has no context in why I'm trying to limit the electronics or whatever. Another way to go about it is to be like, how do you feel? How does your body feel? You know, what would you like to do? And like right. in exposing him to like one day where he only plays like an hour of electronics, another day, you know, like four hours. And you ask like, what'd you think about this day and that day? And 
and trying to open him up to his own experience. Cause like, even if I am right, I've seen people get fucking blindsided and now your kid's like a professional gamer and they make multi-million dollars. And it's like, who's the asshole now? You know, and not that money is everything. I'm just, I'm just saying, you see this with chess chess. They did the same damn thing. Oh no, you play chess. Like that's bad for people. They're not going to, you know, learn shit. And it's like, well, look at chess now. It's the opposite. So I see all these contradictions and I'm like, yoga was so amazing and learning how to teach it because it was all, it was so experiential and, you know, backpacking and rock climbing it's the same thing you want to be courageous fuck i could give you a 30 minute lecture but let's go climb a cliff and you go five feet and you want to piss yourself it's like me too like and you know and i have all these students they're like oh will you're the most courageous guy i bet you wouldn't be afraid to climb any mountain and it's like dude i practically pissed myself when i'm 10 feet off the ground and that's no higher than your playground like (laughs) you know and like i it avoids all this pretension and like I know there's the guru problems and stuff like that, but it avoids all of it because I don't have to allow you or impart this wisdom because if you go up and have the experience, you can, you know, tell me all the shit you learn. Right. Yeah, there's a lot there. I mean, <laughs> with the, uh, the example of your, your son, you're reminding me of almost the protocols during the pandemic where we're like locking everything down. Mm-hmm. And it's like, People, if you understand like what's going on, you should be staying home. Like you, you should stay. if everyone on the planet just did nothing, just stayed home 14 days, we'd be good. And it's a matter of, of giving people the choice to do that, to, to make that decision for themselves mm-hmm. versus just imposing it on everyone. Just blanket society, you can't go out. Now what people are doing is going out. And I know in... in at least my childhood, um, <laughs> I would always do whatever someone told me not to, regardless of how crazy it was. The crazier, the better. Like I yeah. almost did some damage jumping off my second story childhood home with an umbrella. <laughs> what? Yeah, just because I was told I wouldn't be able to uh, pull the Mary Poppins exit. <laughs> Didn't work, but uh, I did it, yeah. So, no, I mean... Again, people are different because my brother does well in that yeah. type of an environment where it's like, these are the rules. This is what you do. Um, but I very much fought that type of um, interacting with my parents. I was much better with a reward system. Instead of like, you can't do this. It's more like, if you do this, then you get that. Mm-hmm. kind of thing i liked i was a bit more goal driven i guess you could say so i loved having like something to work towards you know and i think that's beautiful because that gives that space where in the reality i realized like you know i love to travel and i thought everyone did and i'm like people would tell me oh, i don't want to travel oh i want to stay like stay you know stay at home vacation. I'm like, ah, you've just never traveled before. You might be anxious or something. And I'm like, oh, you pretentious dickhead. Like, no, some people don't like to fucking travel, man. Because my son, he's the other way where he's like staying home's comfortable. But me, it's like variance is comfort and staying home's monotonous. So it's like, I always want to, you know, like three days, four days a week, let's go here and there and there. And, um, and I just realized, or no, I am realizing with greater and greater uh, acuity or accuracy or whatever that 
what what is like general consensus reality and what is will's reality have you had any experience with trying to discern that and draw on that line yeah i had it described to me as there is my truth your truth and then the truth and my truth and your truth are always going to be different you know we we look to the future from the perspective of our past and everyone's past is slightly different so we look at ourselves, the present and the future in slightly different ways, but there is also an absolute reality, just simply like the way that things are when you reduce them down to their fundamental level. And yoga is, hopefully the aim is to move you away from my truth or your truth, just recognize that you know absolutely nothing right now. And through that door, you can eventually find the absolute truth. So I, I have some experience with this at Shivananda Ashram. They were always talking about this type of philosophy. Um, and I think it has some value because more often than not, the little ideas that we have about ourselves or about life, they're so far from, from true or correct. Uh, so yeah, staying open to this, this possibility that we don't know everything, it's so important. When you when you were trying to hold uh, a certain posture, um, what percentage of effort are you putting into full try hard? It depends. If I'm just practicing my regular practice, um, I would say that the level of effort in my regular practice is on a scale of one to ten, like somewhere in the three to four area. But that's because currently my goals. My, my body, physically speaking, it's very good at, at many different things. So right now my game is more maintenance with the physical body and working to optimize more so the emotional state, the energetic state, the mental state. Um, however, when I was really, really focused on developing the skills needed for handstand and stuff like that, my effort was like at a 10. I was every day trying extremely hard to develop my physical system. Um, so yeah, it, it changes for me a little bit, depending on where my focus is. Um, but you know, it's, it's also to say that my current practice, even though I say it's a three or four, that's just a three or four on the physical scale. Uh, you really need to be still at that 10 with regards to your ability to stay present and focused. So I guess in a sense, my effort is always at level 10, but just it changes slightly uh, where I'm focusing that effort. I, like I've had an experience with, you know, I guess if you're in a standing standing posture, like if you're a warrior two, I guess, I don't know if this is any of this to be technically correct, but if you're in warrior two and if you're trying to bring your legs together, push your legs apart, um, do you do that or do you keep your legs passive? Oh, it depends. Also with this one, it would depend. For the most part, I would maintain like a baseline level of activation. That's what I'm, yeah. Yeah, so the goal with, yeah, Warrior 2 or any other posture for that matter is to create a certain alignment within your physical body that will, A, allow for you to feel safe and supported. B, the physical body will start to sustain itself. And what I mean by that is, Sometimes with posture, there's a lot of thinking involved. Um, if you use standing, when we were born, we didn't know how to stand. We didn't know how to walk, whatever. We needed to learn those things. But now, nobody ever thinks about how to consciously maintain balance on two feet. And so asanas are the same. 
in the beginning, there's a lot of involvement. We really need to think about our positioning, what are the hips doing, what are the legs doing? But eventually, once you have this ideal alignment, the body can start to relax into that ideal alignment. And you no longer need to think about holding the posture. And then when that happens, your mind is free to move on to what we call as the next level of awareness with the practice. In your practice, what, how do you understand or interpret the ideal um, alignment? Do you use it as an, ex do you use external references and videos or is it like an internal kind of feeling? Definitely more in the beginning of my learning about these postures, there was an external reference that was extremely important. Uh, find some teachers that you really value. And for me, it's kind of like a teacher needs to be, I used this word before, inert. A teacher needs to be like free from the sway of emotions. For me, a teacher who I would want to learn from is someone who embodies these practices of yoga it really reaps the actual benefits. So uh, having that level of being unaffected by the outside world is kind of a good benchmark what to look for in a teacher. And if you find that, see what that person did to get there. What did they do as far as the postures is concerned, the breathing, so on and so forth. So you learn just a baseline about these things, and then you go off and you start to explore on your own. And when you're exploring on your own, it's important that you survey the body and you notice how these things are actually impacting you. So we talked about warrior two. Um, my teacher told me how to position the body in warrior two. If I'm holding it the way that they said to do it, and then the next day I have some low back pain or something, then it's a sign, okay, I need to tweak something about my alignment. Any pain, any discomfort, chances are it's a sign, something saying you need to change some aspect of your body. So a little bit of that foundation that we get from our teachers, but also a little bit of personal experience. We merge those things together to create a practice that is truly effective for our body, for us as an individual. Um, when, you, when you, for eating and your diet, What's your relationship with the sensation of hunger? Because uh, great question. I, yeah, go ahead. Sure. Well, when I was more so focused on just physical improvement, it was five or six smaller meals per day. And that's what my body needed to you know, build lots of muscle, lots of strength. But I was probably never hungry. Um, these days I eat one or two meals a day. And if I'm not hungry, I simply will not eat. I think that it's a big thing for most people is that we get into this kind of like karmic habit of, okay, it's 10 a.m., breakfast, 2 p.m., lunch, 7, dinner. These times of day, regardless of how I'm feeling, I'm going to prepare and, and eat a meal. It seems ridiculous to me. So I really try to listen to the body. And if it's hungry, have food. If it's thirsty, have some water. Um, it is important to actually be hungry in any given day because uh, long ago, I thought that I knew what hunger was and I really had no idea what the sensation of hunger was. And it wasn't until I started experimenting with fasting, either once a month, once a week, intermittent fasting, where you can actually not only experience hunger, 
but also notice how efficient your body is when it's not just stuck the whole time, you know? And how, how did that teach you about the, the sensation of hunger? Because like, how did fasting teach you that? Because don't we all feel some sense of discomfort and then respond to it by eating? I know we don't, we could do the, the time right. thing too, but I find that there's like this in-between thing where it's like my body's communicating uncomfortable feelings and literally every time it was like, ah, food. And I found that maybe there's some more nuance there, but maybe fasting gives you that discomfort so you're able to see more nuance in your discomfort or? The goal would be to be fully in tune with what the body and mind actually need from the diet. Sometimes, like you mentioned food, it's kind of a comfortable thing to just have. There might be some sensation in the body that's arising, not even related to hunger, but food might be able to quench or remedy that unpleasant experience that you're having. It's kind of like a, it's a Band-Aid. You throw like some tasty food, however you're feeling, chances are you feel a little bit better. But for me, hunger, it's a thing that arises when you have a need in your physical body. You need sustenance to maintain this physical shell or maintain more subtle aspects of the mind. But if you're not having a need, then you shouldn't be putting excess substance into this system. Even though if you're just not feeling good, yeah, food might help, but it's not something you need. That's not actually related to true hunger. So yeah, the fasting was just a way to sample those sensations and see what it's actually like. You know, the stomach is grumbling a little bit, but sometimes it might be just the actual act of digestion. You know, things are bubbling around, moving through your GI tract. What, who knows what's going on? Only when you really like take a full break from anything, whether in yoga, we talk about taking breaks from food. We talk about taking breaks from speaking, which is called mauna. We talk about taking breaks from also sorts of sexual activities as well, but only when you move away from something for a period of time, can you actually appreciate what it truly is. Yeah? So wow. These things are all tied. The food, the speech, the sexual energy in yoga, they're essentially halves of the same whole. It's almost like when you impose a constraint on yourself, you can garner new knowledge. Hmm. In a sense. I find that with uh, with travel anyways, because with travel, it's like, I mean, I can get, uh, I live in a, a valley that's like at the foot of a bunch of glaciers and stuff. And, you know, it, here it's like I can go up the valley or I can go up the valley to go and look at the mountains and come down. And that's really beautiful. Uh, but what actually gives meaning to being in that landscape and what I see, the visuals never change, but constraining my mode of travel gives me a different experience and allows me to enjoy the landscape in a different way. And it's not even like the river and the road even run side by side sometimes. So it's literally not even the, pers the, the literal perspective, but the mental perspective is different. The fact that when you raft down, when I have to, oh, sorry, when I have to ride, uh, ride a bike up the river and then raft down the river, and that's going to take me hours. And along the way, there's all these constraints because I'm not on a highway. I'm not on a maintained road. And then when you're in water, there's all these issues, right? I'm moving the same place, 
but I'm having a whole different kind of experience. And that was not, that was only brought about by constraints, you know? And I, I find that it's interesting with a lot of things where it's like, you know, balance is another one, take away one foot, you know? And then if you can stand on one foot, yeah, take away the heel. And, and like, it's like imposing all these constraints on yourself is, I don't know, it seems like the way or a way anyways. Yeah, you're kind of reminding me of uh, what do we call is the key and socket method, which is a simple tool for holding crow pose. But for most people, it really doesn't make sense until you make it harder. So you would say until you add more constraints. Only when you have those in place, when it is a little bit harder, then you actually need the technique. Otherwise, you would fall down. So yeah, sometimes when we make our situation different, more challenging, whatever, we, again, there's something new that can be experienced in that sense. Um, how has... How have you gotten into calisthenics and how does it relate to your yoga? Yeah, calisthenics for me is purely a way to support the fanciful dimensions of the asana practice. Um, to say it one way, I had this injury, I recovered, and I, I experienced these healing practices, which I felt were so valuable. None of them have anything to do with holding a handstand. But for a lot of people, those fanciful physical feats, they can be what we need to come to the practice. They're like the hook, you know? Mm -hmm. And once you're on the line, then maybe you learn something slightly deeper. But I wanted to share all of these healing practices with as many people as I could. And at the time, the scene was very much like Instagram was kind of newer. It was just starting to be a space for yoga and movement. And so I just decided I'm going to increase my exposure um, by demonstrating these fancy physical feats. And I started to learn all of these kind of more acrobatic uh, asanas and exercises. I would start to share those things. I would start to teach workshops about those things. But in those workshops, I would slip in certain pieces of information, which I feel they're not really like exciting or whatever, but they will change your life. In a, in a very good way. Um, so it's kind of, it's been my way of giving people a little bit of what they want and also a little bit of what I feel they need, mm. even though what they need is basic and boring. <laughs> yeah, that's so cool, man. Yeah. And uh, it's something that I've, I've been looking at like uh, rec recreation kind of in, in that way. And I hope to be somebody in that space kind of like yourself. Because I find everybody likes to go and do something on the weekend. And, you know, especially if it's like a physical thing, you know, here in Washington, people are like really into, you know, the mountains, mountain biking, hiking and stuff like this. And then even within martial arts and jujitsu. Um, but there's like, that's like, there's a physical element to all those things. And physical decline is pretty common throughout most of them. And yoga is a pretty all encapsulating thing physically but then i find it's a really great introduction to a lot of other things like you said and because i i'm that person you know like i've even done um i've been doing yoga for just off and on only as like a physical practice and uh complement to jujitsu and uh ultra running and rock climbing uh for three years and then i got into a yoga for bjj program 
where it's more of like an overlap between, you know, uh, yoga for basically jujitsu athletes. But the Sebastian, he's he's put in more of the yoga, like general yoga teachings in there. And he slipped them in very, uh, very subtly. And I realized that going online, because that's what I was doing, being a single dad, I'm always doing the stuff from home, um, going online and doing these videos, I was able to build like the ability to get to the asanas. And then I didn't see this whole spiritual practice. I kept bumping into it and in my own like curiosity and epiphanies and stuff without intending to get there. And now that I'm getting introduced to it more, it's becoming it's it's giving me a, a form of structure to be able to help improve myself and hopefully help other people. And it helps circumnavigate my bullshit of like, I have an answer to where it's like, dude, yoga's fun, you know, and, that, and that's what I like. And that's what I even with my son, it's like, hey, you want to do a little yoga with me? Like, if that's yeah. how I could like teach him, you know, principles and things like that without directing teach. It's fucking I love that, man. By example, with yeah. kids, with parents also, because um, my mom was my first student. Uh, I became a yoga teacher. You, you have to be the example. It's so hard to just talk about these things and expect people to follow suit. But yeah, if you just, every day you wake up, you've got a little set of practices that you do. Your kids see you doing that and how afterwards, you know, you just got this peaceful energy. That's enough, you know, to encourage someone towards the practice. Yeah. Where can people find out more about you, Daniel? Yeah, website danielrama.com or Instagram at danielrama with a little underscore at the end. Those are probably the two bases of operation. And then obviously the Becoming Balance app is kind of my one-stop shop for everything that I've been creating from classes to online workshops, lectures, podcasts, and so on. Yeah, but everything can be found through Instagram and my website, for sure. All right, and I'll be sure to leave all those links in the show notes. That sounds good, Will. I appreciate it, Daniel. Thanks, man. Woo! Thank you guys for listening to this episode of the podcast. If you want to check out more about Daniel, you can head over to those links that he mentioned. And if you want to support the podcast, you can go to becominghumanpodcast.com and drop a comment, share it with a friend, or you could even uh, rate us on iTunes. I'm going to play you out with a song by Christoph Crane. It's called The Death Birth, Death and Birth Freestyle. Uh, it's all audience prompted and... I really like it. I hope you guys enjoy and have a name? wonderful week. Jim? Bye. All right. So, so this piece, all right. Um, all right. It's going to be heavy. Okay. It's going to be heavy. I don't want you to be like, Jim, uh, his grandpa recently passed away. So that's going to be a part of what's going to be happening. Anything else? Idea. So how about just death in general? What else? Staying strong, death, birth, birth and death. All right. Wow. Okay. Here we go. All right. So we got birth, death, grandpa, staying strong, staying strong. I'm so thankful that I had a mom because some people, they never had a mom. 
But they learn how to get a mom in the world they lived. Now there's a boy and there's a girl and there is birth. There's a woman's side and a man's side for what it's worth. I know that deep inside of me I connect with both. Because I am the parasite and I'm the host. When you die, you live. When you live, you learn to die. When you're born, you actually die. It's funny how when we are born, we need somebody to take care of us. Just like when we get old, we need somebody to take care of us. And then in between, we need something like a therapist. And in between, we feel emotions get embarrassed with the things that the society put on us. And it's all imperative. Because I know because there's nothing that compares to it. There's something special about staying strong, realizing that you'll always get beyond anything as long as you're together and even if you learn how to adapt to all the weather then we can always be here forever 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 ever forever ever yeah as long as you understand that it was never and as long as we know that we are all connected to one being of a sun that's up there and it shivers and I know it from every spring fall and summer and winter I can feel my mother and father for what I give them and so it's death the way that we die we try to cope with something that we learned is look in the eyes I don't know what it's like I know what it's like to lose a grandpa to Alzheimer's he drank a little booze but mostly he had something in his brain that obstructed the reality of himself and I know when I watched him try to function and it made me sad it made me really mad it made me feel like a little kid who was glad to have a grandpa and a mom and a family and not take them for granted and know that I'm a human being walking on this planet and all I have to do is just look to understand it. And all I have to do is not try to overstand it Stand here, look at the mountain in the mirror And understand that I am strong like a rock I know because I'm God, I know that we're beyond I know that we're the king, we learn to be the pawn But we're not, it's not natural To be inside of a habitat that's habitual Because you know that you're a criminal to the ritual Rabbit trap, that is that, this is this My brain's a trap and I know what religion is I know what the vision is It's attaching to somebody you love Love, somebody that you learned to hug like your grandpa or your friend his name was Michael Larson he was something that makes my heart spin I know because I love him still and he's here right now the way that I look at it he still makes me smile sometimes he makes me cry sometimes he makes me friends sometimes I say forgive me sometimes we make amends even though he's gone he's actually really not gone neither is anybody that you've ever lost or anyone that you've ever loved they're here so give it up for your ancestors and all the tears and the blood put your hands up for the love put your hands up for the love that all of us feel when we stand and look up above at the stars at the dirt at the stars at the dirt at the stars at the dirt from the death to the birth from the stars to the dirt from my death to my birth from the stars to my dirt Missoula thank you Soak up every little bit to sharpen my bones. All grown.